Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During January, we're doing a sermon series called Crossover. We're going to focus on the places where different religious traditions align in terms of their beliefs with Christianity. I hope you enjoy. So our first reading today is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 5 to 15. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy, and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from Romans 8, 18 to 23. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So over the first few weeks of the new year, we're going to be doing a sermon series called Crossover. The idea behind this series is that we are looking at different religious traditions and how those religious traditions cross over and intersect in terms of their beliefs with Christianity. Now, the idea behind this series is not to say that all religions are the same, because they're not, but it's to talk about how religions have parallel paths of interest where they're trying to achieve the same ends often by different means. So last week, we talked about polytheism and henotheism and how they intersect with Christianity. If that makes no sense to you whatsoever, you should go back and watch that sermon because I'm not going to explain it right now. But it was a good sermon, I think, in terms of helping us to understand some of the history behind our faith. Today we're going to move on and we're going to look at a completely different religious tradition. We're going to talk about how Buddhism overlap and intersects with the Christian belief system. So, what is Buddhism? Where did it begin? Where did it start? What do they believe? So, Buddhism began with a man named Siddhartha Gautama. 
He was born in 563 BC in an area known as Lumbini. Now, Lumbini is actually modern-day Nepal. Nepal is this little small country that's on the border of India and China. It's right in between the two. And tradition holds that Siddhartha, he was born into royalty. He was a prince. And his father, who was king at this point in time, he built three palaces for Siddhartha. That's pretty nice, huh? Not bad, three palaces. But he kept him sequestered away within these palaces because he didn't want Siddhartha to be exposed to religious teachings, and he didn't want Siddhartha to be exposed to the reality of human suffering. And whatever Siddhartha wanted, he received. He had no end of food. He had no end of possessions. He had no end of women to fulfill his sexual desires. He never encountered any type of sickness or disease. He never encountered old age. He never encountered poverty. And he lived this way for 29 years. And then one day he decided, you know what? I think if I'm going to be king, I should probably get to know my people. Smart move on his part. So he gets into a chariot and he starts to go out into the world. And the first thing that he sees is an old man. Now this sight is so foreign to him that his charioteer actually has to explain to him that people do indeed grow old. And this is so fascinating for him that Siddhartha decides, you know what, I need to take more of these trips. The world is an amazing place. And so he starts to go out, and on the second trip out, he encounters a man who's dealing with sickness and disease. So he learns about that. And then he encounters on another trip a decaying corpse, so he learns about death. And on the final trip, he encounters a man who practices asceticism. Now, asceticism is a form of severe self-discipline where a person is not willing to indulge themselves in any form of worldly pleasure. And now, this was, again, fascinating to Siddhartha because Siddhartha had lived a life that was the complete opposite of that. I mean, his life was a life of total and complete indulgence. And so he becomes inspired, and he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to reject all of the benefit that he gains from his father, he's going to leave his royal household and become a beggar. So he leaves his home, becomes a beggar, and this begins his journey to discover religion. He wants to know what religion is all about, and he ends up studying under two yoga masters. The first yoga master is an ascetic, and what he does is he teaches Siddhartha that the world is created of two parts, matter and consciousness. And that your goal is to separate consciousness from the matter. Now, this is better known as enlightenment. Now, the way that his yoga master teaches him to do this is that he has to live an ascetic lifestyle. He has to live a life devoid of all worldly pleasures and goods. And Siddhartha does this for a couple of years, but he decides, you know what, this is not the best way to achieve enlightenment. I mean, it's important. It teaches you things, but it's not going to get you there. So he leaves his yoga master behind, he goes out and he finds another yoga master. And this one has a completely different way of thinking about it. He tells him that the way that you achieve enlightenment is by attaining high levels of meditative consciousness. So what he does is he goes out and he starts meditating for years. But again, he comes to the conclusion that meditation alone is not the way that you achieve enlightenment. So he ends up abandoning that teacher. And what he does from that point forward is he synthesizes both of these teachings together. He blends them into a single teaching called the middle way. It's a way of moderation away from the extremes of self-indulgence and self-denial. And this middle way is best known as the Noble Eightfold Path. 
And the Noble Eightfold Path means right view, right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi, which is meditative absorption or union. And after determining this and living this out, he spends 49 days meditating under a pipal tree. And at the age of 35, it is said that Siddhartha became the first person to ever achieve enlightenment. And this is when he became known as the Buddha. And that word Buddha, it simply means awakened one or the enlightened one. Now, as a result of his enlightenment, the Buddha tells us four truths about the world in which we live. The first truth is that existence is defined by suffering. The second truth that we come across is that this suffering is caused by our attachments to the world. The third truth is that the cessation of those sufferings is when we eliminate our attachments to the world. And the fourth is that the Eightfold Noble Path is the way to eliminate that suffering in our lives. So in this way, what you have to appreciate is that Buddhism is not really a religion in the sense of Christianity. It's more like a worldview or a philosophy. Because Buddhists, they're not meant to worship the Buddha in the same way that Christians worship Jesus. Now, there are some versions of Buddhism that actually have divinized Buddha and they do worship him, but the original intention of Buddhism was that you just follow in his footsteps, you do what he did, and then you attain enlightenment. You with me so far? All right. Now, do you want to know the key to attaining enlightenment? Okay, I'm just going to tell it to you. It's easy, right? It's just no problem. It's easy to do. So the key to attaining enlightenment is to understanding that the world is impermanent. The world is constantly in flux. The world is ever-changing. And so from the perspective of the Buddhist, the reality that you are in right now is a total and complete illusion. That's what they believe. Now, I remember the first time that I encountered Buddhism. And I had a teacher who was working with me, and I said, well, I don't quite understand this idea that the world is an illusion. Can you explain it to me? And so she said, okay, I want you to think of it this way. What does it mean to be you? So I would ask the question, the person who you are now, the person sitting in the pew or sitting in the choir, are you the same person you were when you were a child? No. Oh, you're very different, aren't you? How about the person who you are right now compared to the person who you were 10 years ago? Are you the same person? No, you are not. Now, you can keep shaving down the time increment to the point where you could say, well, the person who walked through the doors of this church before this service is different from the person who's sitting here right now. In fact, the person who you were three seconds ago is different from the person who you are now. And so what this begs the question of is, is there anything you can point to definitively that is you? And of course, my response to her was, well, I in the compilation of all of those moments from the time I was born until right now. That's who I am, which is true, right? But she came back and said what the Buddha would have said, which is, yes, that is true, but there is nothing that you can ever point to that is definitively you, to say, like, this is me. And so the Buddha would say what that means is you do not exist. <laughs> I don't know. Take it for what it's worth, I guess, right? Now... The moment that you understand that your life is impermanent, that is when you achieve enlightenment. Now, for us in the West, we are very concrete thinkers. 
This is very hard for us to wrap our mind around. In the East, in Asia and in India and in a lot of these places, well, the fact is, is that this very much makes sense to them. And so to kind of drive this home for you, I want to show you a clip from uh, a docu-series called One Strange Rock. Now, some of you may have seen this docu-series. If you haven't, the concept behind it is that it follows eight astronauts who have more than 1,000 combined hours in space. And so what it talks about is their experiences being up on the International Space Station, up in the space shuttles. But they also talk about the science of how the world came to be, how the universe came to be. And it goes all around the world. It's a really beautiful series. It's beautifully shot. And what you're going to see in this clip is you're going to hear from two people. The first, you're going to hear from Lama Samdup, who is a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And then you're going to hear from an astronaut. His name is Jerry Leninger. So let's see what they have to say. You're just a speck in this long timeline of life on Earth. We don't really think of the string of events that had to take place for us to exist today. From the survivors of those mass extinctions to the cycles of death that keep the planet so alive today. A million migrating salmon, a billion mating mayflies in the sky. Mixing of the genes and, and all those combinations and permutations. Yet all those different things had to weave together, all those chance meetings had to take place. Grandparents coming over from the old country, that all had to happen. Well, my father's life, he had to survive World War II. You know, his best friend Jerry did not survive. That's why I'm Jerry, you know, named after my dad's best friend. If you look in a history book, there's nothing special about my dad, he's not gonna be in there. Uh, but he influenced my life. And he was somebody who always told me you can be anything you set your mind to. And if you work hard and you study hard, for example, Jerry, you'll be an astronaut someday. And when you think of all those things that had to happen to create the human being called Jerry Leninger at that moment, who then becomes an astronaut, floating above the planet, going 17,500 miles an hour, a life dream, it's incredible. You know, I had to meet my wife. Uh, we overlapped at a job by one day. Uh, you know, would John, Jeff, Henry, and Grace exist without that chance meeting, without um, us getting together at the right time, at the right place, in a beautiful, you know, summer night? I kind of feel that I've done my job now. My family has grown at this point and I'm proud of them. And if I move on to you know, another life, I'm kind of okay with that at this point. So I hope down the line, uh, getting emotional here, uh, down the line, you know, my sons, my daughter, draw upon something that their dad did for them. You know, what I, how I influence them. We're all against all odds. We are all against all odds. You know, our very uh, existence on Earth against all odds. And so, you know, take advantage of it. Make the most of it. 
Now, like I said, I hope that you have the opportunity to maybe go back and watch some of that, because it is a beautiful series. It's about nine or 10 episodes, and it's all shot like that. It's just incredible what they were able to put together with it. But I want to come back to something that Lama Samdrup says when he gets to the end of that. He says, nothing is forever. Everything is impermanent. And it's this impermanence that makes our lives so special, because the shorter a life is, all the more special. And that is just so true, is it not? I mean, it is the fact that our lives are finite that makes them so special. And I also love the way he says, it took an eternity to make every single one of us, and yet our lives are just a blink of an eye when we're here. And so I think this raises a really interesting question, which is how do you use your time in a way that really matters? And both Buddhism and Christianity, they have a similar view on what you have to do in order to do this. So I want to take some time now to talk about the comparisons between the two, because this is really going to lead us to kind of the whole point of this particular sermon. So on the one hand, Buddhism and Christianity do start in the same place. They start in the place that they believe that human life is defined by suffering. And you can see this in Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry was a reaction to the suffering of the Jewish people. He saw that what they were going through, and he wanted to alleviate that suffering. And then on the other hand, you also have a similarity in the belief that the world is impermanent, that it's not always going to be here all the time. And we saw this actually in the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. You can see this where he says that when Jesus returns, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. The idea being that the world in which we live, it's passing away, it's fleeting, and nothing will last forever. And of course, this leads to the same problem that the Buddha is trying to address with the Four Noble Truths, which is the idea that our suffering is the result of our attachment to an impermanent world. And this is really true for us as humans. Don't we cling to the tangibles in our lives? I mean, we do, don't we? I mean, do you cling to the things and people around you that you believe are going to leave you anchored? I mean, is that what we do? And of course, the problem is, is that those things will break and those people will eventually die. And so when we live in a world that is so impermanent, that isn't going to last, how do we find our meaning and our value? Now, for the Buddha, he would say that the way you find meaning and value is by discovering nirvana. But for Jesus, he would say that the way that you find your meaning and value is by discovering your spiritual self. Both men are pointing to the eternal. They just have very different ways of getting there. And so... We've talked about the Buddha's way. Let's talk about Jesus's way. So last week, I told you that Jesus, what language did he speak? Do you remember? What was the language called? Aramaic. Aramaic. Okay, and do you remember the name for God in Aramaic? Aloha. Aloha. You remember that, right? (laughs) There's actually a kid at first service who was like, (laughs) I said, what does it remind you of, right? And you all dutifully said Allah, which is because it's the precursor to Arabic. And this kid was like, Aloha. And I was... (laughs) Like, yeah, you didn't know that Jesus was Hawaiian, did you? He came, came from the islands. So, Alaha, what it means, the best translation of this is actually not God. It's sacred unity, the all or oneness. And uh, really, when we're talking about this, if we were to talk about it in our modern English, we would say that God is everything. You, me, all existence is God because God is what makes existence possible. And so, for Jesus, the way you alleviate 
suffering and find joy is when you become connected to the oneness of God. So if God is in you and God is in me and God is in the wood of the pew that you're sitting in and God is in the dirt of the ground, then our goal is to become connected spiritually to the presence of God in all of those things. Now the way that the Buddha would say that we achieve that spiritual connectedness is by attaining enlightenment. But for Jesus, the way that we achieve that spiritual connectedness is through the creation of God's kingdom. Now, if I'm going to talk about the creation of God's kingdom, I need to say this up front as a disclaimer. These ideas are very easy to understand. They are very, very hard to execute. It's the same thing like with Buddhism, right? Like, so if you want to attain enlightenment, right, all, what do you have to know? You just have to know that the world is what? Impermanent. Okay, you're enlightened, right? Okay, go off. You just got it. If it was that easy, you'd find a lot of people who are enlightened, and if you've walked around, you probably know that's not true. So, when we're talking about God's kingdom, there are only two things you have to do to create God's kingdom. It's very simple, and this is no secret. Every church should be doing these things. The first thing you have to do is stuff that we've talked about before. It's Matthew 25. You've heard me talk about this a lot. So Matthew 25 says, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, care for the sick, visit those who are in prison. So this is how you change the tangibles in the world. The second part of it, which is equally as important, is different, though, from the other, which is the resurrected life. And this is internal. This is how you change internally. Now, the resurrected life, if you've not been here before and you're newer to the church, you may not have heard me talk about this. It's a complicated idea, but if I were to boil it down, what I would say is that it's talking about the idea that you need to kill off those parts of yourself that are selfish and greedy and once those things are gone, you need to allow something new to rise in its place. So it's death and resurrection. And that new thing that rises in its place is allowing Jesus' teachings to become part of you. Basically, you live as Jesus lived. So you have the external world and your internal world, right? Now, again, easy to say, hard to do. If it would just happen, then the kingdom would be here. We wouldn't have to talk about it, would we? right? So what does it mean to create God's kingdom? And this is why we read from Matthew today. It's why Judy read from Matthew. So basically Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, I want you to go and create the kingdom. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Now we need to translate this into modern speak because if I told you all to go out and create the kingdom and I said I want you to raise the dead and cast out demons and cleanse leopards, you say, yeah, I'll go do that right away. <laughs> Happy to help you out, Alex. No, that's not the way it works, right? In the modern world, we would look at it very differently. What we would say is that we would say, go out and create the kingdom by forming connections with other people because that's essentially what he's saying. Go out and form connections. Find the God that exists in other people. And when you become spiritually connected to those people, that's when you're going to be able to alleviate their suffering and create healing in their lives. So the kingdom of God, when you go out and you create it, when you do Matthew 25, when you invest in the resurrected life, then what you are doing is you are creating connections in the world. And this requires intentionality on our part. For a Buddhist to attain enlightenment, they can't just sit there and say, all right, I guess it's just going to happen one day. They have to really work at it. And the same thing is true for God's kingdom. 
We have to work at it. It has to be our intention. And we can't just create God's kingdom by coming here on Sunday morning. That's just one part of it. This is how you build up the resurrected life. It's part of building your in, internal spiritual life. But that's not all there is to it. You've got to get up out of the pew. You've got to go out into the world. And you've got to be willing to get outside of your comfort zone. You've got to be willing to interact with people who you normally wouldn't interact with. And you've got to seek out the divine in the world. Because that's exactly what Jesus tells his disciples to do. He says, go out into the world and find those people find those connections and when you find those connections when you intentionally create those deep connections with other people particularly people outside of your circles who you normally are part of that's how you create the kingdom and when we are all dedicated to creating God's kingdom when you're dedicated to Matthew 25 and the resurrected life then you also inadvertently do something amazing you inadvertently end up following the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So when you follow the resurrected life, that's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Matthew 25 is loving your neighbor as yourself. And this brings me back to the question that I posed to you earlier. In a world that is so impermanent and we can never hold on to it, how do we find our value and meaning? And this is going to be the most Christian-y answer I could probably ever give, but it's true, and the answer to that is love. It is absolutely love. So in the Bible, it literally says that God is love. It says that in 1 John, God is love. So what did I tell you? What do we remember from Aloha? Aloha tells us what? That... God is what? Everything, right? Alaha, God is everything. And then in 1 John, God is love. So if those two things are true, what that means is that the fabric of our universe is literally made of love. And the more in touch you are with that love in yourself, in others, in the world, the more you are able to alleviate that suffering and create healing in others. The Bible tells us that love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. I believe that to be true. I believe that love can do all of that because in the world we live in, the world is always passing away. I look at my boys, my son Elijah up there, he's nine years old. It was like yesterday that he was born. Nothing stays the same. Everything is always changing. But the one consistent thing I have found in my life is love. And that love is what brings me hope. And when I feel like my life is just dripping through my fingers, which I sure you feel all the time, when I feel that way, the one thing I grasp onto is love. And so I hope that you know that that love, if you can just tap into the source of that, into the oneness, into the all, into God, then you will find a life that is truly worth living. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.